Good evening. I got a, uh, an anonymous uh, note today, unsigned. Matthew, you said today was going to be cooler. <laughs> Is this some kind of sick teaching? <laughs> The topic for tonight <laughs> is how all my mistakes are brilliant teachings. <laughs> Do you hear that, Joanna? <laughs> you? Okay. Sorry, I was I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> um, So uh, this is from uh, uh, a writer, um, Hoglund, uh, who recently wrote this book um, called This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. And um, it's an attempt to kind of like affirm the value of this finite life. The recognition of finitude does not offer any guarantees that we will lead a responsible life and take better care for one another. But without the recognition of finitude, the questions of responsibility and care could not even take hold of us. To turn toward you, to focus our gaze on another and attach ourselves to what we see is the deepest movement of secular confession. We are turned back to our lives, not as something that, are, that is our property, but as a form of existence that is altogether finite and altogether dependent on others. This is not the end of responsibility It is the beginning. A few few years ago, I was I was teaching uh, a retreat, and this retreat was in the context of of a UCLA undergraduate course, and um, a four-credit undergraduate course in mindfulness that a friend of mine, Marv Belzer, teaches. And, um, and I was co-teaching some of this. So the, the kids had a kind of choice. They could do a final paper or they could come to a silent retreat. Yeah? <laughs> and a lot of them chose the retreat, right? So it's a big room, it's a group of, uh, it's maybe 50 undergrads and then a a lot of other people, so it was maybe 125 people or something like that. And um, we're 
we're taking questions. We took some written questions, you know, anonymous written questions, and we're kind of like pulling them out of the hat to read. And um, we get one question, and the question was something like, um, what is enlightenment? And in your own personal experience, please describe it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I say something. I don't remember what. I just kind of launch into something and go on like a kind of riff. On, and, um, and then this like slightly awkward pregnant silence falls over the room. And these are not like folks who have been like totally socialized to silent retreat, right? And the silence just kind of like hangs there more and more kind of oppressively. And almost as if just to like unburden themselves, they just start clapping, yeah? (laughs) This is like a silent retreat, right? And um, and so my friend Marv and and Diana Winston like like um, Marv takes that as almost like an invitation to have some Dharma combat kind of like which has a venerable lineage like of kind of debating you know or something and and so he says something like you call that an answer or something, right? <laughs> and then he gets up and he's, um, his background is as a philosopher, a philosophy professor. Like, and, um, and so he's, one of the kind of characteristics of philosophers is they're very careful with their words, yeah? And uh, their definitions and, and it's, uh, they're, they're not loose with the language. And so he, um, he says, um, in adding on to whatever I had said, he said, I'm not sure what love is, but it, I know it has something to do with paying attention. Yeah. And he went on to say, um, during this time on retreat, we may have thought of somebody in your life where we'd like to improve the relationship Perhaps we'd like to love them better. You might have someone in mind. What would it mean to love them better? What I will suggest is to love them better is to be better at paying attention to them. Love is the willingness to pay attention. To love a person is to be willing to pay attention to them. It's not more complicated than that actually paying attention to self or another is love in action. So what, what do we actually have to do to pay attention to another? To truly pay attention to another, we have to, the mind has to soften. We have to relax the assumptions, the projections, all the ways in which we fill the unknown with our own familiar concepts. And um, ultimately to, to pay attention in this like really open way is an act of, of generosity, of some giving. 
some some researchers around, around mindfulness, they've asked the question, like, how does mindfulness improve empathy? But from this perspective, mindfulness is empathy. Yeah? Mindfulness is empathy. To actually look in the open way that we're prescribing is a form of empathic connection with another, with oneself. A friend of mine um, was describing uh, a dance, uh, dance workshop that he participated in. I think this was in London. It was a multi-day thing, and it was it was kind of like a, an a, um, expressive dance where you're putting your mind in your body. You're you're dancing your autobiography. You're like leaving it all on the floor in that way. It's not like classical or or anything. Yeah, and. Um, and at some point during the the uh, the weekend, um, the the retreat, the teacher said, "Okay, I want you to turn to somebody, turn to a partner, and for the next two hours, you're going to dance with each other. And your instruction is to fall in love with them. Yeah, to fall in love with them." And on the surface, it sounds like maybe uh, kind of silly or something, you know, like, how could, how could that be? But when I actually think what that might be like, what it might be like to dance with somebody for two hours, a stranger, and to be able to just start to see everything in their eyes and all of the the vulnerability and the strength and the fear and the joy, um, something like falling in love might happen. And here we don't have uh, a dance partner, right? But this is the quality of attention we're turning inwards. So the the talk tonight is is about uh, the the convergence of wisdom and love, yeah, attention and care. And I, I think in our practice, you know, it's like it's important to to tether these two qualities. Sometimes we get um, too fixated on one wing of the bird, yeah, the two wings of awakening, wisdom, compassion. It's Toni Morrison on wisdom. In all of our education, whether it's in institutions or not, in homes or streets or wherever, whether it's scholarly or experiential, there's a kind of progression. We move from data to information to knowledge to wisdom. And separating one from the other, being able to distinguish among and between them, that is knowing the limitations and the danger of exercising one without the others, while respecting each category of 
each category of intelligence, this is generally what serious education is about. And if we agree that purposeful progression exists, then you will see that it's easy, it's seductive to assume that data is really knowledge or information is indeed wisdom or that knowledge can exist without data and how easy and how effortlessly one can parade and disguise uh, itself as another and how quickly we can forget that wisdom without knowledge Wisdom without any data is just a hunch. So here we're very patiently gathering data, yeah, a lot. We're looking and gathering data. And this is uh, kind of matures into a recognition of patterns, yeah, of the development of of information, of knowledge, and ultimately uh, wisdom, seeing that ways of seeing that that, um, are conducive to peace. When, When wisdom is lost, our love becomes less intelligent. We love the wrong stuff. We expect the wrong things from what we love. We try to erase the first noble truth. And on the other hand, when love is lost, when love is lost, a million terrible things can happen. James Baldwin, hatred, which could destroy so much, never failed to destroy the man who hated. This was an immutable law. So tethering these qualities, wisdom and love. We were in the the teacher's office and um, Vinny was wearing a pair of sweatpants and uh, not not that that's a big disclosure or something, but just, (laughs) but of course Vinny's not going to wear like normal sweatpants. So his sweatpants had inscribed on them a quote from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. And um, Joanna commented that that quote gets used a lot in Dharma talks, and so here it is. <laughs> um, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. Yeah, it's a beautiful quote, and. Um, and a lot of ways of reading that, or a lot of ways of uh, feeling into that. But one way of understanding it is that the love and the wisdom are in essentially two sides of the same coin of emptiness. And that um, 
In wisdom, the self is not there. There's no place for the self to be. Um, there's the sense of body-mind is pervaded by space, or there's a sense of um, impermanence such that it's just totally incoherent to locate oneself and to call anything me. And it's like the, the, the density of our being gets thinner and thinner and thinner, yeah, until it feels more and more like um, vibrating space. And so wisdom tells me I'm nothing, but then at the same time, when there is no self in a certain way, the world becomes the self, yeah. The world becomes the self. And the sense of, um, you know, there's no, no front edge of the perspective. There's no, no place. It's like, okay, Matthew ends here and space begins here. It's like, so, so in a way we actually could say like, oh, uh, yeah, no, love tells me I'm everything, everything. So, um, this is um, uh, the the fruit of r- releasing tension in the mind of letting go. Sometimes we hear that phrase "letting go" and it sounds like apathy or detachment or um, indifference to suffering or injustice, but it's really just releasing tension in the mind. And the case that I want to make is that there is, there's love in the wake of letting go. There's love in the wake of letting go. I was, was teaching a, a two-day retreat on, on anger down, down the hill in the community community hall and and so it was a weekend just dedicated to anger right and um and so we get there and um and the the group is there and we start with some kind of opening sit and i kind of anticipated like the vibe is going to be people are going to be kind of angry. (laughs) And um, so I'm like kind of ready for that, you know, like, all right, I'm sitting there. Yeah. And um, so quickly it was like, uh, no, 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 no. That doesn't feel like anger at all. It was just like, uh, waves of something like, uh, like grieving, yeah. That was the vibe, just permeating the whole room, all of us, yeah. And a kind of insight arose, and I, I, I was almost like a little embarrassed that I hadn't put two and two together before, but the insight arose that, um, so much of the goodness of this path unfolds through a process 
that we might call grieving. Not merely grieving the inevitable losses of any human life, um, but actually the way the way that we develop insight, that we soften into compassion, the way we let go, the actual in the trenches, on the ground uh, experience of that often for, for many people feel something like grieving, yeah. So what is it like to make peace with the first noble truth? Yeah. What is it like to uh, open to our finitude? Yeah. What is it like to uh, recognize the impossibility of, not the need to let go, the impossibility of holding on. And a kind of willingness to grieve is, is um, it's almost, I almost think of it as like a, a, a duty or like, this has to happen at the individual level, but at the societal level too. Right? It's like we, um, unless unless we we actually can grieve our national past, our you know national self-esteem is always going to be very brittle. And at the individual level, it's like to feel like we could be ambushed by our own. Uh, ungrieved loss or something like this is also um, puts us in a precarious position. Oh, uh, Ajahn Sajito said, um, what we don't listen to, we become. What we don't listen to, we become. so that that which is we we can't hear or won't hear in us when we listen when we look into our own heart mind in the same way we might look into the eyes of that dance partner when we listen in this way if we're if we're if we're skipping over pieces yeah we we come to act that out. If I don't know that I'm in some fit of, of aversion or something, I act it out, I become it, yeah? And so what we don't listen to, we become this practice of listening, of, of, uh, of, um, of letting go is, is turning this quality of care inwards. Teacher um, Steve Armstrong gave this this potent image of like, if I asked you to ball up your fist, you don't, don't no need to do this. But if I asked you to ball up your fist and to keep it balled up, it would hurt for some time, and then at some point there would be some kind of numbness. And then if somebody came around and says, you know. Do you want to open your fist? Yeah. Do you want to unclench that grip? And you began 
to open that clench, it would actually hurt more for that time when you're moving from the clenched fist of grasping to the open hand of letting go. And the movement from that clenched fist to the open hand has a name, grief. It often feels like grief. It's early, early years of practicing I would just find myself, especially during metta practice, but sometimes other times, uh, I would find myself crying these kind of like mysterious tears, you know, like tears that didn't have a clear origin. And it's really in a sense only in retrospect that I could, could kind of untangle some of the threads in those tears, yeah. Of, of, in a way, grieving the fact that I had been kind of sleepwalking through my life, in a way. Of grieving the harm that I had done through my own, you know, greed, aversion, delusion, the harm visited upon me through the confusion of others, the suffering of the world, yeah. And also in those tears, in that kind of quiet grieving process was something like a a dawning realization of like, oh, there's goodness in the world. Actually goodness in the world, there's goodness in you or me. So that um, process of, um, of softening was um, yeah, and kind of necessary to actually begin to, to find my way into, um, into deeper kinds of love. Yeah. And um, you know, I want, want to you know, just acknowledge all of this because um, people almost, you know, sometimes need permission to grieve, yeah, and are grateful when they get it, yeah. To know that that's actually, for, for not everybody, but for many people, that's actually one of the tropes in this path, yeah. And you don't even have to know what you're grieving, what you're letting go, but you just, that kind of um, mysterious way in which the heart um, meets change, the heart meets the moment and is softened. The moment can soften us. We can use the moment to soften rather than harden. And we do get a deeper and deeper kind of appreciation for goodness. Um, that um, that metta, metta, in some ways, is to be, for you to be moved by your own goodness. Yeah. Actually, feel into a certain 
measure of innocence, goodness, kindness, yeah? And to be moved by that. Now that we continue letting go, to love more deeply, we keep letting go. Because clinging compromises love. Clinging complicates everything, but clinging definitely compromises love. The clinging is so closely associated with control and possessive, possession, you know, ownership, these kinds of like, yeah, the clenched fist. And love is the open hand. Um, Scholar uh, Olensky. Why is it that humans tend to feel possessive and acquisitive about all aspects of their experience? The ownership of property is embedded in most legal systems, but in drawing out the implications of the Buddhist insight, one sees this is an extension of a much more profound habit of mind. It is this very sense of ownership that is directly responsible for both individual and collective suffering. Ownership is a node around which greed and hatred coagulate and is itself the expression of a profound delusion which gives rise to all sorts of strife. Ownership's a node around which greed and hatred coagulate. The the Dhammapada sayings of the Buddha, these sons are mine, this wealth is mine, so are the misinformed incensed. But even their selves aren't their own, let alone sons, let alone wealth. The, The signature of ego is defensiveness. When, um, when we turn our characteristics into possessions, I am this, I'm not that, when we turn that into a kind of possession, we have to stand guard. We take up a kind of defensive position. Yeah? And we become uh, fragile. The ego makes us fragile. So I want to trace some of the the connections between this kind of self-clinging and self-harshness and then also judgment of others. So when the Buddha in, in, you know, enjoins us to, to make of yourself a refuge for all beings, make of yourself a refuge for all beings, um, 
we want to acknowledge that actually my own egoic identifications make me less safe, less of a refuge for others. Yeah, that makes sense? Like my own defensiveness like compromises the quality of safety I can afford to another person. We all know the experience of of tiptoeing around the egoic sensitivities of another person, yeah? Of knowing where the pressure points are, the tender spots are, and needing to actually mold and accommodate ourselves to their sensitivity, yeah? To the places in which they insist on being something, yeah? Right? And that uh, is a dance, yeah? And that actually robs, uh, you know, if, 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 if people are needing to accommodate to me in that way, that robs them of the experience of just settling into their own lives in that moment. And so to actually be a refuge for, for another person is to work through these places of self-identification. In, in this kind of way we get hooked, this self-identification, we, um, um, there's a kind of moralism about it. We get very moralistic yeah, about what we're supposed to be and not supposed to be, what makes us worthy or unworthy. And, um, and so we become quite judgmental of ourselves, of taking ourselves as a kind of uh, object to be evaluated. And then when there's this kind of self-clinging, it makes, um, it makes us compulsive about social comparison too, yeah? So we, when we insist on, I am this, these, these characteristics, they are mine, they are my possession, I am these things, that can't help but draw us into some kind of competition of envy or arrogance or this kind of compulsive comparing mind. Because comparisons, that's how we make like inferences about ourselves. That's how we affirm, oh yes, I am this, I am this. And so, uh, Sometimes we make the comparison and we think we're better and we win and there's some measure of arrogance or we think we're worse and we lose and we're envious or we, we think maybe we should be the same, yeah, equal. And the Buddha said, there's dukkha in all of it and you actually have to step out of the whole realm of locating the self in, uh, through comparison. Yeah. 
Now, as we do this, as we start to let go, we, um, this, that sense of kind of less and less ownership, uh, which does not mean to be without boundaries or anything like that or condoning harm. It's not, that's not what I'm pointing to, but the sense of not owning our own qualities, yeah? Um, and in a way, even not owning one's life. There's a kind of shift in the heart that happens where um, life really, truly starts to feel like a gift, yeah? Like every moment we have left feels like gravy, yeah? And um, Michelle McDonald sort of like described um, described this kind of, she's talking about, uh, about Donna, uh, to a, to a teacher. And, um, you know, Donna, the way that word in, in the West is construed, it's like, it's money, it's, you know, kind of financial donations and modern fundraising, you know, and, um, a very, very limited kind of sense of it. But Donna, you know, she asked her teacher about Donna and he, uh, you know, he's like a 95 year old Burmese uh, meditation uh, master, yeah. And, um, and the, what she, the story she told, she said, he went over to the altar where the Buddha was and there's, you know, often like fresh fruit and she, he got, got all this fr- fruit and he like threw it in Michelle's lap yeah, and he said, you know, that's Donna, yeah? He said, like, this roof, that's Donna. Your body, that's Donna, yeah? Offered, offered, here it is, Donna. This day, Donna. Ideas um, are useful in this realm, but they're not strong enough to uproot the conceit of self. We actually have to, um, to see its emptiness. And um, as we, we settle into practice, um, and the kind of friction that we tend to create with experiences that starts to to dissolve, we were released into a world of more and more change. Our friction, our clinging, our thinking freezes life, yeah, freezes experience and freezes ourself. And so, uh, we start to 
to let go of some of these kind of reference points. We start to surrender to the flow of changingness that is the present moment, yeah? There's, there's no present moment that stands still. So some of the sense of referencing, referencing self and other, of past and present and future, of here and there, of, of uh, liking and not liking, all of these kind of reference points start to fade, start to fade. And with that fading, um, one's experience of oneself begins to change. So we're, we're relinquishing not just a kind of craving for sensual pleasure, but we're relinquishing the hunger for experience itself. is subtle, yeah, but want to share. So it's like there's a way in which that kind of sense of tumbling forward into the next moment, into the next breath, into the next sitting period, into the next insight, into the next samadhi, into the next, into the next. It's like we, Some of that hunger gets satiated, yeah? Starts to to fade. So um, the Buddha says like when there's no, um, when there's no lust for, no passion, passion is not a great translation, but no lust for experience. He says, consciousness does not land, yeah? Meaning that normally consciousness is always, it's always landing somewhere. We're always making ourselves into something. We're making a body. We're making sensations into something. This is a kind of radical perspective that it's not just that we cling to experience, it's that clinging or foments experience, yeah, births experience. Yeah. It's that, that, that actually to have the experience of self and world of sight and sound in the way we ordinarily have it, that requires some measure of clinging. And when we let go and let go and let go, make peace with the imperfection, let go, experience thins out. Consciousness doesn't land in the same way. The Buddha says, um, uh, just as if there were a roofed house or a roofed hall having windows on the north, south, or the east, when the sun rises and a ray has entered by way of the window, where does it land? And the disciple says, on the Western wall. And if there is no Western wall, where does it land? On the ground. And if there is no ground, where does it land? On the water. And if there is no water, where does it land? It does not land. 
and says, this, this, we are truly free of suffering. Yeah. Consciousness not landing because a certain kind of hunger has faded out. And that letting go is so total, yeah, so complete. That um, there's nothing. And this doesn't breed a kind of nihilism or something like this, because the self re-arises, re-coagulates. But it re-coagulates in a different form. Yeah, and um, I don't know why, but the love that emerges from that kind of letting go is um, very natural, very effortless. I was sitting a retreat some decade ago or something, and um, sitting there, and my mind was so, uh, was so open, and um, the, the person next to me was a friend, older friend, who was coughing, and um, I remember, like I'm a rule follower, I don't, I don't talk during retreats or something, and so I, you know, um, I remember though, I'm just sitting there with this kind of like having no idea what I'll do next, what arises next. Yeah. And I hear her coughing and there's something just this very simple kind of gesture of just turning to her and whispering in her ear, are, are you okay? And I remember that because it felt like the truest expression of love I had ever made. And we can start to trust that the, the, the face of insight is, is love. Face of insight, the way insight manifests is is love. Yeah. Because hatred requires clinging. Love only asks that we let go. Sit for a moment.
see. Um, we have about uh, 20 minutes to, to walk and then if you like to, uh, to come back for a sit, are, are we gonna chant? Yeah, we'll chant tonight. And, um, and then if you, if you wish, you can join, join us um, 9.45, we'll, we'll do some sitting. And, um, and later tonight we'll post uh, a sheet with, um, for one-on-one uh, practice discussion sign-ups that are optional. And um, I, you know there are, there are quite a few of them, but not enough for for everyone. So the suggestion is to, um, you know, if there's something really cooking in your practice, something you need cooking, you need support with, whatever you know that feels feels um, uh, ripe, please do sign up. And maybe if you're, um, yeah, if you it's not quite like that, give other folks a chance to sign up, see if the, the slots fill. And then if there's some openings, please sign up, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Okay. It's nice to be with you, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.